That is why it is so imperative we include the count of rape victims and the global indices so we can provide proper aid, education, resources, reduce stigmatization, and most importantly, protect the victims. We need to strengthen our efforts in reducing this global phenomenon and create avenues where women can come forward to receive redress and long-term help they need. Welcome to the Global Rights Defenders podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear from global rights defenders and learn about human rights issues worldwide. If you like these episodes, please subscribe, like, or comment below. Your feedback is so, so valuable to me. I read all the comments and emails, so for those of you who've reached out, thank you so, so much and keep it coming. If you want to hear about a particular topic, let me know. You can comment below or reach out to me at globalrightsdefenders.com or by email at globalrightsdefenders at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at GRD underscore now, Facebook or Instagram at Global Rights Defenders. This week is a special week. It is my first deep dive episode. I will not be joined by a guest this week. It'll just be you, me, and the mic. I wanted to take the opportunity to really get into niche topics to educate the public and engage further in this medium. Just a reminder, I'm trying to raise public awareness about human rights issues and eventually make weekly donations to the causes I am advocating for here on this podcast. By supporting this podcast, you are directly supporting those most marginalized and affected by human rights issues worldwide. This week, we are talking about rape as a weapon of war. It is a heavy topic and will be triggering to some. I will be using graphic and explicit language. Please be aware of this before you listen to the episode in its entirety. My goal is to help those most affected, and sometimes we have to outline the worst of humanity before we can collectively make it better. Thanks for listening this week, and I hope together we can make a difference. What is rape? Rape is defined as an unlawful sexual activity, usually carried out forcibly or under threat of injury against a person's will or with a person who is beneath a certain age, or if that person is incapable to give valid consent because of mental illness, mental deficiency, intoxication, unconsciousness, or deception. Otherwise, it's known as an act of outrageous violation. Rape has been a byproduct of war for as long as human beings have engaged in conflict. It was not until the 1990s that rape during wartime began to be recognized as a weapon and intentional strategy. Historically, rape has been viewed as a private crime, a sexual act, committed by the bad seed or individual, or worse still, it is so commonplace during wartime that it has been widely accepted as a byproduct. Though men are also raped, the data shows that rape during wartime is overwhelmingly committed against women. However, rape is neither incidental or private. It is a strategic function in war and acts as a tool for ethnic cleansing, achieving military objectives, and gaining social control. Though there are several accounts, if not countless of records, of rape being used as a weapon of war, I just want to highlight a few to give context to the types of war crimes we are dealing with. During World War II, rape was used to terrorize and demoralize enemy populations and troops. In Japanese conquered areas such as Korea, Singapore, Myanmar, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Taiwan, and the Philippines, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of women and girls were taken through force and put into military sex slave camps the Japanese coined comfort stations. Comfort women became a category of women and girls who belonged to poor communities and could be forced to serve as sex slaves. Japanese soldiers at the time believed if they had designated comfort stations, it would prevent them from raping local women en masse. During World War II, Nazis raped Jewish women as they invaded, despite concerns with rape defilement and raped countless others on their path to the Ukraine. 
Russian troops raped German women, hypothesized to be up to 2 million. As one witness stated, the Russian soldiers were raping every German female from 8 to 80. It was an army of rapists. In 1971, state-backed Pakistani troops raped anywhere between 200,000 to 400,000 Bengali women during the Bangladeshi liberation movement. And we saw this time and time again. In places like Sierra Leone, the former Yugoslavia, Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In recent years, we're seeing the same strategy being deployed against the Tigrayan population from Ethiopia and Eritrean forces. They're employing rape, sexual slavery, gang rape, sexual mutilation, and torture. Ukrainian women right now are also facing threats of rape as a weapon of war from advancing Russian soldiers as the evidence is building. But how has it been possible for rape to be committed so many times and with such impunity before it began to be investigated for what it truly is, a weapon? During their programming in the 1990s, Medicine Sans Frontières began witnessing rape as a war strategy. Bosnia created and designed rape camps where women were being used to birth Serbian babies. This here is an example of ethnic cleansing, which can be defined as the mass expulsion or killing of members of an unwanted ethnic or religious group in society. Later in 1994, MSF observed systemic rape in Rwanda following the genocide, where Tutsi women were being raped by HIV-infected men, recruited and deployed by the Hutu-led government. This time, rape was used to gain social control over the Tutsi population to instill terror and eradicate the Tutsi population. When used as a weapon of war, it terrorizes, displaces, and negatively affects the social fabric of communities. Sexual violence happens in conflict, such as war zones, but also around refugee resettlements or camps for internally displaced people. It also happens in host communities where internally displaced people live, and along the routes where people use to flee from violence. In Darfur, for instance, women and girls are responsible for child-rearing and domestic duties. Those living in displaced camps or towns are required to collect firewood, water, frequent the market in exchange for goods, and tend to the livestock. Leaving their area of refuge poses a great risk of being raped by soldiers nearby. Due to deforestation, women are compelled to venture further and further away from their protected areas of residence. Yet because their community is so dependent on humanitarian aid, it is imperative for them to supplement their family's income by any means necessary. Collecting firewood for cooking and fodder for livestock is an integral part of their family's well-being. Every time they leave their parameters, they are at great risk of being raped. And if they do indeed get raped, it heavily stigmatizes the woman, her family members, and community at large. Men are unwilling to marry a woman, husbands may abandon their wives after the fact, and she may be disowned for disgracing her family. She could then be forced to find other means of work, often prostitution or related, to continue to support her family's income. Supports for women are seldom, if they exist at all. And because of the conservative culture that permeates within Darfur, communities are unwilling to discuss the violence. This is exemplified in the insightful Netflix documentary, City of Joy, which follows rape in the Dominican Republic of the Congo, where rape is used to scare the surrounding population. If women are being raped, they fear leaving their secured parameters. This means they may not supplement their family's income and may be forced to relocate to a safer area. Women that have been raped, as I previously mentioned, will be heavily stigmatized, abandoned by their husbands, or become isolated. Men may feel ashamed because they were unable to help their wives and feel emasculated because of it. If you haven't seen City of Joy, I highly suggest you check it out. For the next part of this podcast, I need to add a disclaimer. The language that I'll be using could be very graphic and it could be triggering to some. Of course, we're now forced to discuss the very serious and real consequences of rape. Effects of sexual violence can be psychological, emotional, and physical. 
This includes depression, flashbacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, and can materialize in the form of self-harm, substance abuse, dissociation, panic attacks, eating disorders, sleep disorders, and suicide. Some physical effects include sexually transmitted infections such as HIV, unwanted pregnancies, and other physical injuries including to the mouth, breast, vagina, and rectum. For instance, between 2004 to 2009, the Kivu conflict in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo encapsulated a brutal war. Armed groups from the DRC and neighboring countries committed atrocities and systematically used sexual violence as a weapon of war to humiliate, intimidate, and dominate women, girls, their men, and communities. Armed combatants took advantage with impunity, for they knew they would not be held accountable by police or judicial authorities. A particularly inhumane public health problem emerged. Traumatic gynecological fistula and genital injury from brutal sexual violence and gang rape, along with enormous psychosocial and emotional burdens. Many of the women who survived found themselves pregnant or infected with STIs or HIV without access to treatment. Sexual violence is widespread and pervasive. Gang rape is often exacerbated by other forms of extraordinary sexual savagery, including the forcing of crude objects such as tree branches and bottles into the vagina. Sometimes the women are tortured, the genitalia mutilated with knives or bayonets, or burned with naked flame. Or they are shot through a gun barrel thrust into the vagina. One dreaded outcome of the trauma from sexual violence is genital fistula, defined as an abnormal communication between the vagina and urinary tract, usually the bladder, or between the vagina and the alimentary tract, usually the rectum, or both. The fistula leads to uncontrollable leakage of urine or feces, or both, through the vagina. The perceived risk of sexual violence and death in this conflict setting posed an insurmountable barrier to seeking crucial emergency obstetric care if a woman had obstructed labor. For those who were not killed, the genital injuries required difficult and painstaking surgery. Often there is an additional damage to sexual and coital function and reproductive capacity is also compromised. As discussed before, there are existing inequalities, especially gender inequalities, that perpetuate and enable rape. Weak law and order, discriminatory social norms and customs, ethnic tensions, poor governance, impunity, and extreme poverty all compound one another to breed conditions that enable sexual violence to be used as a weapon. So what is being done to protect these women? In the late 20th century, efforts were made to prosecute rape as a weapon and strategy of war under existing international law. Here are the current laws that prohibit rape as a weapon. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights, adopted in 1948, Article 5 states, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. The primary statute, Article 27 of the Geneva Convention relative to the protection of civilian persons in the time of war in 1949, had existing language that protected women against any attack on their honor, in particular against rape, enforced prostitution, or any form of indecent assault. This protection was extended in an additional protocol adopted in 1977. The Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, otherwise known as CEDA, was adopted in 1979 by the UN General Assembly and can be described as the Bill of Rights for Women. It consists of 30 different articles and defines what constitutes discrimination against women. It also sets up an agenda for national action to end such discrimination. In 1993, the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, now termed the UN Human Rights Council, declared systemic rape and military sexual slavery as crimes against humanity, punishable as violation of women's human rights. That same year, the General Assembly Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women contained a clear and comprehensive definition of violence against women and a clear statement of the 
rights to be applied to ensure the elimination of violence against women in all forms. In 1995, the UN's Fourth World Conference on Women recognized that rape by armed groups during wartime was in fact a war crime. In 2008, the UN Security Council denoted that rape and other forms of sexual violence can constitute war crimes, crimes against humanity of a constitutive act, and respect to genocide. In 2010, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women at its 47th session pursued Article 21 on the Convention of on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women to adopt a general recommendation of women in conflict, prevent conflict, and post-conflict situations. And that's just to name a few. Though between 2016 to 2022, there have been other publications and other attempts to force gender equality and to recognize rape as a weapon of war, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and there's still a lot of distinctions that need to be made. A really important resource that I found during my research for this podcast was the National Research Center on Domestic Violence, and I'll be sure to include the link below. It's a really great resource. It lists all the different laws that pertain to women and that pertain to this particular topic. Though Japan reached an agreement with South Korea on December 28, 2015, acknowledging the issues that arose from widespread and systemic human rights violations of comfort women, they are one of the only few. Japan agreed to acknowledge and express regret for its role and to provide a one-time contribution of 1 billion yen, which would equate US 8.3 million, to carry out joining projects with South Korea, including a foundation to be established in the country. They are one of the only few countries to admit guilt. States and state actors engage in rape during wartime with impunity. It is seldom for them to be prosecuted or for them to face charges for their crimes against humanity. Though international laws prohibit the use of rape as a weapon of war, there are few governing bodies to hold states accountable. In 2002, the International Criminal Court was established to end impunity for international crimes such as genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Though defendants have been charged with breaking international laws of rape and sexual violence as acts of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, it has not yet been brought to the ICC. The ICC has limited resources and a restrictive mandate, enabling it to prosecute the very few at the top. Because of the deep-rooted history of rape during times of war, the issue of gender-based violence and conflicts receive inadequate attention in the discourse on gender equality and sustainable development. According to the Global Justice Center, the failure to treat war rape like other illegal weapons or war tactics removes the central protection of the laws governing the conduct of war from rape victims. By recognizing and enforcing consequences, we will promote deterrence by changing norms which legitimize rape during times of war. We will raise awareness regarding the number of women and girls injured or killed by rape. According to the Global Justice Center, global indices that track fatalities and injuries by weapons do not consider rape to be a weapon for these purposes. By recognizing and enforcing consequences, we will provide new avenues for redress, including to the victim's families or to the victim for the purposes of restitution, such as becoming HIV-infected, a forced pregnancy, childbearing, and childbearing costs for children born of war rape. The true number of those affected by sexual violence is unknown. These occurrences are grossly underreported, especially in non-refugee, non-internally displaced settings, and that the true number is difficult to calculate. Those women and family members who are not killed outright may fail to report because of stigma and fear of retaliation. Also, it's important to understand that if it is reported, it may not be captured adequately. Clinic staff, health management information systems, and official statistics may not be captured accurately due to inappropriate interview methods, inappropriate documentation procedures, or inappropriate reporting techniques that may not be sensitive, discreet, or confidential. We need to make sure we are all advocating for sexual violence to be recognized and documented across all forms. Rape as a weapon of war has been employed on all continents. The problem is not limited to a certain time or region. 
In the past, we've seen this in Bangladesh, North Korea, the Philippines, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Sri Lanka, Uganda, Vietnam, and the former Yugoslavia. It was also prevalent during World War II, as we talked about earlier, across all parts of Europe and Asia. While there are no exact statistics on the number of victims or the prevalence of sexual violence, research indicates it is a global problem. That is why it is so imperative we include the count of rape victims in the global indices so we can provide proper aid, education, resources, reduce stigmatization, and most importantly, protect the victims. We need to strengthen our efforts in reducing this global phenomenon and create avenues where women can come forward to receive redress and long-term help they need. To quote Barack Obama's 2008 campaign slogan, Yes, we can. Thank you and take care.